theme song my god wow i I mean we are top of the line musicians myself (laughs) myself and yourself are something and i want to tell the folks at home today's show is sponsored by marriage supply it's a place for lovers to search and browse a curated selection of toys lubes and candles all for couples in a porn-free environment. Man, this, that company is blowing up. You think you think GameStop is blowing up? You think AMC, <laughs> Marriage oh, Supply? Boy, wait, you wait, tip wait, them wait till all I drop that we spack. Is that what it's called? A spack? <laughs> Speculation? What's a spack? Uh, what, oh yeah, yeah, something like that. They call them spacks or something like that. It's going to be a huge blow up. So if I don't Marriage know. Supply can only get big enough to be shorted as a tanking company by, oh, by hedge man. funds. If we could just get to a failing company, that would, maybe there's a chance the internet could turn it all around. It's the curse of my life. I have a, a bunch of companies and they all do pretty good. <laughs> like, I mean, we've never, you know, our band, really good. Never the biggest. No, Nowhere near the smallest. Just, just solid, man. It's like our whole life is just solid. And it, mm-hmm. you know, and I think some people solid's not the word I would use. What, what word would you the, use? It's survive, surviving, alive. You might be barely, right. Barely survival. You might be right you know, about that. But the it's, threshold of life and death, you know, because think about it. Most bands don't survive. Most brands don't survive. Most podcasts don't survive. Yeah. So I feel on top of the world for sur- be a survivor. I know. My been God. Been surviving for 20 years without a job. The last job I had was at a daycare, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> So I am proud of me. Now, I think of what, a lot of what we do as just, you know, in survival and evolution sense. Maybe it's just like bacterial life yeah. early. So I think long term. And it's possible that we're just 20 years of survival is just the warm up for something, you know? Might be. Why not? It does, that's the way exponential curves work. So it might take 20 years to figure out what in the fuck we've been trying to do. And maybe the next 20 years we'll figure it actually do it. There'd be growth. Yeah. But from so far, it's just been... Surviving. We're a band. We're a podcast. We're people. You know, f- pretty good. It feels similar <laughs> that we were like roaches. Like it, nothing really ever can kill us. No, I, I mean, we're so. a band in a pandemic. Just it just put out a special. Where's the biggest shows of our entire career? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, seriously. we've been preparing for survival times. We act like roaches. We live in you know pee buses and yeah. floors. I mean, get made fun of. of. People think we're disgusting. Yeah, dirty. Wish we ah. Why is that here? Our verbal content is just us, uh, you know, uh, talking over each other, saying nonsense as it comes out. And, and we've been able to make that work. So I feel good about all of those things. But I do understand that f- where I am now that, you know, we probably got to figure out where to, to go. 
<laughs> what to really try to do is has been so foggy for the last ten years. Yeah. Like, what is the real goal of anything? It's just been, you know, I feel a really strong desire to communicate and share things that I like and do. Yeah. But really, I mean, Bad Christian's been such an experiment, and so. Where we at now with a new theme song? I think that might just turn it around. I know. We're, we're, I'm kind of excited tonight. We're doing a like a, I guess you'd call it an extra episode or whatever it is. But we're going to be talking. Yeah, we'll make about, another episode this about week, uh, so blast uh, with uh, a few band dudes like Colin and Lunsford from As Cities Burn. We're even going to talk to Dan and Matt McDonald. Um, I want I want to talk to them about life after the band because that is the strangest thing about my life. There has not been life after. No. I have not. I've. Uh, there's been. You know how many times I've longed for it and cried out to God for cried life after for yeah. after the band. You know how many times yeah. I stood stood somewhere and told you, looked you in the eye, serious, yep. maybe a cow tear getting ready, building up in my eye, about to fall down, and I said, "I'm done, Matt. I'm done." And, and never once has it happened. I hadn't, it, I hadn't that lived, doesn't even phase. Hadn't me. lived an hour post band. No. I don't know if I ever will on my deathbed. I mean, the, the post band will be heaven, maybe. I mean, I might die well, before this thing's you, over. Have you spent the time to grieve the any other life that you could have that's already not, the ships have sailed from? No, a career man <laughs> with a, earning a well, retirement. I mean, I got my degree in elementary education. And I'm glad I'm not a teacher. Uh, you know yeah. that that doesn't seem like that would have been the best opportunity for me. I mean, mm -hmm. I, was I going to be a businessman? <laughs> Was, was, I, yeah, was, I gonna, was I gonna be detailed? <laughs> right. <laughs> that wasn't gonna happen. I mean, what what else in the? I know people say that. What else could I have what, done? What if you were in your nineteenth year at, at McCloy Elementary School, fourth grade. Right. I mean, does that sound Mr. right, Mr. Morale, What's up? That, I mean, <laughs> you, I mean, it could be great. I Maybe, mean, I, you could, yeah. I mean, that's possible. But only if you were like a passionate on fire teacher right. that really became engaged with the kids deeply. Right. That would that's or you would hate it. Like, that's the yeah. only way. Well, that's the thing. I that. mean, being honest. And that's only certain people. Going back to when I did my internship, uh, I just, the the way school was taught, I just felt, it felt so restricting and it felt like you couldn't, you were going to have to do things a certain way and that was just what it was going to be. And there's rules and you have to follow them. You know, this is what well, you have yeah. to do. And it just seems, all the rules But that's what you have to do silly. to do it at mass public scale. I know, you know but I'm that's saying? what I'm saying. That's what I can't really follow. So it probably would, I probably would have gotten out of that eventually and, and there's two parties that are really at conflict with school and one is helping underprivileged kids and one is gaining resources for your kid those right. are the two forces and to balance those out it has to be kind of sucky the way it is a good example would be georgia's uh second grade online teacher is unbelievable now she doesn't make a lot of money and anybody smart would know why don't I just hire that lady to teach my kid because right. they pay more than she probably makes to go to the private school. Right. But if you had this one teacher give her whole 40-hour focus to developing your kid in some way, oh my gosh, that would be great. Now you can't do that, it's illegal. <laughs> because right. they would get, that's why he, so she works here for this, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. you can't really and then it would just be rich people get everything. And you know, so those things are one some of the forces that keep school balanced out, but let me tell you a story. And see how you would handle this okay. if you were in your 19th year of teaching. You would have found yourself <laughs> this year, let's just say you stayed in Seattle somehow and your teacher here or something right. like that. Then you would be in the position that uh, Georgia's teacher is today. Now, today, and we'll see how you would handle yep. this and what your reaction is to it. But today is the beginning of the Black History Month, February. Yep. 
Okay. Now, in Seattle, of course, it's a very liberal place, and the school board, district, teachers union, all this stuff are very Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Basically. They're very that compared to other places. Right. Um, and so now they are starting the it's Black Lives Matter week starting today. So today the teacher's job was when I heard him log on, I listened to it. I just had to I just enjoyed it so much. Um, but she had to explain to a bunch of seven year olds online what Black Lives Matter was. Wow. Now that's pretty difficult. Yeah. If you like you that's what you would have had to do this morning is, right. is say, okay, it's now Black Lives Matter week and I need to tell you about Black Lives Matter. You may have never heard of it, right. but I had to explain it and its significance. Yeah. And I was clearly heard and I, and I don't do. know what your parents uh, have told you right. about this. And or, the parents are probably, like right. Matt was listening, of course, right. on this online right. school. And so have you ever been on a podcast and started to talk to the guests and realized you didn't even really know, you thought you kind of knew what you were going to say, yeah. but you didn't really. And then you started say, correcting yourself and disclaimer this. and You know what I mean? When you yeah. get in that loop, it happens podcasting a lot. Well, the teachers are in that loop today everywhere. Because <laughs> they, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to stumble through exactly what to say right. on that. But I'm curious what, I'm not going to tell you what she said, and then I'll tell you how she said it or whatever. But just just say, Black Lives Matter. We're doing that here at school. It's important. But what is it? Okay, now I want you to go ahead and explain that to the seven-year-olds, that maybe their parents are listening and you have no idea what they think, but you know where you are in the HR world and the teachers' union and the expectations of you, and you're at a rich uh, neighborhood uh all almost all white class, right? And and you're just a you know thirty year old, really sweet white lady. Go ahead. I have to say, explain that. to those kids. Yeah, I'm just asking. How would you? What would you say? It's a hard task, is it not? Yeah, yeah, it is for sure. With everybody listening, and probably parents listening, and et cetera, and maybe who knows what the the principal? Well, you know, I don't know what their directives are, like what they're supposed to say, can't say, like tough stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess you'd probably try to start out with a joke, like you'd say something like, uh, a, a, <laughs> yeah, a, a, "A white man, a black man, and a Jewish man walk into a bar." <laughs> <laughs> you got to start with a story, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. No, I don't. I mean, it'd be really tough. I mean, you would have to. And the problem is, these kids are barely listening, oftentimes too, and they're just kids, yeah. and they're just, so you have to say something pretty concise that will keep their attention, and also, you know explain it in a, a a more eloquent way or the you know the the clearest way you can <laughs> explain what what, it, what I mean, what's in, what is black lives matter that is, is what i'm saying that question ain't easy no. in itself to, to explain to anybody of course i felt it particularly a burden yeah for i, I mean the thing i would say is it's a movement that has started to help promote equality among races right that that oftentimes uh, in our country's history black people have been oppressed uh often and you can look at a lot of statistics maybe i would even give them some statistics about uh jail and prison and poverty and what socioeconomic stuff i just try to tell them a few different numbers that were simple enough to understand and tell them that's what this movement is about to make things more equal i guess that's what Mm -hmm. i would say well, you know, it's just when you get into saying it, you just think if you're going to misspeak, and when, oh, especially sure. when you when you start and something, you can like, say okay. the wrong thing, and it'd be you get in real trouble if you if you just accidentally, not intentionally or anything, said the wrong thing. You right. Get well, because parents out there, like, I mean, you know, like, 
parents get real bent out of shape yes. when they think authorities are right. ramming messages down throats. Yep. I mean, that triggers even everywhere. That's true. You know, it's less true in Seattle. Like right. what she said today would get more reaction in other places or get her made fun of because kids like. You know, parents have this thing where they go, you have to listen to authority no matter what. And so we can't let you go to this authority because right. they're going to say stuff that we don't believe. So now you have to be homeschooled instead of just explain. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. like it's I can't let my kid hear from an authority a thing I don't really believe or something. It right. gets weird. But she, you know, they go into it. And, you know, from podcasting or whatever, if you stumble at the beginning, you're toast. Right. Like if because the, the tone of the voice is, um, OK, so um, today we're, oh, you know, actually, right. I just want to make sure to, this is very important. And yeah. then, then this like over at that point. Yes. You know? Right. <laughs> But she that she she got into that and then she kind of stammered through. I'm not making fun of her. She was doing the best that she could. But she basically this is what I thought was really crazy about it. Of course, she didn't talk about abolish police or right. anything extreme. Yeah. And I don't think that's the point. But really, all she did was water it down for children. And then in the end, she said equality everybody to pursue their own dream. I mean, she basically said exactly what the founding father said and called it Black Lives Matter. Ah, see. But Black Lives Matter thinks of itself as the repealing all of the colonial everything. Right. But when you sum the message up to children, it sounds exactly like everybody right. gets exact equal. Uh, everybody should be treated Freedom equal. And liberty, everybody, everybody of, of every skin yeah. color matters. She keeps saying, but that's yeah. that's kind of not really the Black Lives Matter message. But when she sums it up for children, it sounds like the Constitution. Right. Or the, or the Declaration of Independence style. It's like everybody should have equal this and ability to try and be seen as and not disadvantaged of, you know, that kind of like. Right. And I know we twisted those things the first time around or something. But I mean, the message is that. But now it's branded yeah. Black Lives Matters. What that's called. Isn't that weird? Yeah. It's just like taking the same message that everybody does understand. And of course, children understand when you start talking to them, everybody should be. Treated the same. There shouldn't be reason for this. You should. Everybody should be able to pursue what they want to do the way that they. Blah 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 blah. Anyway, that according to their teacher, that's what Black Lives Matter is. Yeah. I mean, so it's uh, yeah. a branding situation. It's like basically taking the universal message, and now right. this is what is going to get to be the name of that. I guess the difference would be when that was first stated and set up for this country it was spoken by mostly one race only and now they're saying now all races are be able to say this and pursue these things as opposed, yeah, but, you know what i mean you know, but it's but, the same but message if, i agree but it was coming but, from but if you if you, white if you people, on twitter try to tell somebody black lives matter it's like yeah that's what i'm saying so we're all equal like me and you and everything and yeah. colorblind right they go no 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 they don't want you to say it's a colorblind message yeah. black lives matter but that's what that's that's what they're do you know what i'm saying that's yeah. what so it's it's not you know, it's a weird thing, but the point is that they are really just branding yeah. the things that everybody already knows and are people's values if they're not distorted, fundamental human values. It's yeah. just trying to get everybody to see. It's, it's a weird there, thing. There's just do. no answers that are, are good. Like, so we live in our town, um, they have school of choice, right? So you can mm -hmm. choose any elementary school that you want to go to, right? But... There are still the two best ones, maybe three, two really good ones, then one this close second, and then it starts going less and less and less and less, and then there's just the ones that are the bad ones, you right. know, as, or that's what everybody would say, or you know, or whatever, or the ones that you don't choose. Maybe that's the better way mm -hmm. to say it, or whatever. 
And I feel bad. We last night we sat in on the school choice meeting, uh, with the Zoom meeting with uh, about just learning more about it because we just moved here, you know, not not too long ago. And one of the schools is a new facility. You couldn't believe how nice the elementary school looks, mm-hmm. but the area that it is in town, nobody goes to it. And so I looked it up after and read an article about it. And they said when they do like uh, open house nights to come check out the schools, like that school gets like three parents that show up. Even though it's a nice facility. Even though it's a brand new facility and everything. Oh, that's and so then, terrible. And then, yeah. And then, so even though school of choice, it still plays out very similarly. Yeah. Like, so even if you did equalize the money that went into the schools just by the people your kids would be around, most likely right. would still cause the parents to make those right. and, choices. And then that the, the elementary schools funnel in the good schools all kind of funnel into the same middle school, and then the other middle schools are a little bit less. It's but hard it's to say what's less. The, the other thing, too, is that we have that so much information now that parents, I don't even I know if it matters. Like, I don't really understand if schools are – better or worse these numbers and these school ratings aren't really accurate or true or anything they're, they're very bizarre well, it, it depends on what kids you're measuring and how right I mean, that, it's yes just, i think yes. that's garbage yes. for some kids school that is horrible and for some kids it's the best thing possible right and that's not and that's not easy to know that's an individual yeah. thing so there's a, a like a little thing. south of us is a i guess it's another town but it's, it's like the suburb of champagne and uh savoy and it's probably more uh upper middle class, middle class white, and they have a great school down there. And there's one in Champaign, and then it starts just getting different and varied after that. And it's really, it's just really interesting. I was like, man, you, school choice is still doesn't solve the issues. Like even right. it, it just doesn't, and and what because the people choose segregation. You mean yeah? <laughs> Once ch- choice well, is given, that's what they choose, right? Well, you see yeah. that number. Well, this school's an eight. This one's a nine. Uh oh, this one's a four. But still, like that number makes you think it's horrible. But those teachers in every single one of the schools probably all went to the same college. Probably went to University of Illinois or Illinois State, or they all might have. The, I mean. There is no – you can't say that the better school, that those teachers have more passion or anything. It really does come down to how many white kids, how many black kids, how many Asian kids, how many – Well, that's Spanish, how they got into I mean, busing. They're all like, okay, well, even if we try to equalize it, then why don't we just move these kids and make them drive 45 minutes to, to mix the kids? Yeah. But nobody like that. You know, it's just – I mean, it's a, that's what I'm saying. There's not one thing that school is optimized for being child development. Right. That just isn't what is happening. It's just if it was a single yeah. thing that could be improved for one single goal, that'd be nice. But it is not that. It's two different forces that make it right terrible. And so it just ends up it, it just being crazy. Something funny happened today too. Uh, so the line, even the, my kids only go to school like for two and a half hours, if that. And uh, in school, they go Tuesday through Friday. Monday is Zoom meetings. But uh, Ike had a project. He did a project about the gold rush. We talked about it with Francis Sopper a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we pull up, he's getting his temperature taken. He turns around and says, Dad, I left my model at home. And I, and I saw his face, and I just thought, this doesn't matter, and I don't want to do this. And I can remember in that exact moment as well, I remember saying that same thing to my dad and mom. Right? I said the same thing mm-hmm. to my dad and mom, but they didn't go get it and come back. They didn't bring. The, they were like, "Well, you do, you should have remembered," and that was that, right? Yeah. And I was like, and I was mad at Ike. Kind of, I was like, "Why didn't you remember to get it?" And I was like, "Okay." I said, "This is the moment. I, I guess I can go get it." There isn't anything here except for there'll be some little increment of trust my son will have in me that he knows. Well, if I screw up, my dad will help me. 
or if I do something, you know what I mean? So I did. I came all the way back home, got it, uh, went all the way back, and then I, I realized uh, I'd stepped in mud or whatever. So running back into the house to get the model, I'd track mud on our carpet and everything. So I was sitting there playing. I was like, <laughs> damn it, this son. But I, it was really funny because I was like, I w- my parents didn't do that for me, and I, I, on whatever kid level, resented them for it. Like, couldn't you just mm-hmm. help, couldn't you have just gone and helped me? You know, I, I worked on this thing and I wanted to show it to my class. I did the homework. I didn't do bad on my school grades or anything. You know, I'm, I'm working here. Yeah. And they didn't do it. And I was like, well, I'm I totally do understand their feelings though. Now <laughs> I'm on the other yeah. side of it now. And like, damn it, it doesn't matter. It's 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 just a model, and they're gonna show it and talk about it and go, great job, and move on. And it doesn't matter, but he doesn't know that, and he did work hard on it. So I went and got it, and I was like, "Well, this is what well, I'm not, this is the side I'm on now." I well, have I'm to sorry it. to tell you, you chose wrong, and now you are a bulldozer parent, a <laughs> cuck dad, and he owns you. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> now, he, now you are his. Now he owns you from well, now on. Well, I'll I'll yell at him really badly when he gets home, <laughs> crush his spirit. So, so I don't. I mean, that's just it. It's really funny, like. Thinking back to when I drop my kids off, I go, I, "That was me. I know what it's like to walk into that school. Yeah. Maybe I'm be, almost always maybe on even side, be a, like be a little nervous or like my kids moved this year. You know, it's been hard to make friends because everybody's wearing masks. You're only in school for two hours, and but I can I just think back to all the years. Like it's so crazy dropping them off into that school, and they have to go in, and it it has to breed some real crazy thoughts for your adult life. Like I mean, think about how many adults." wouldn't walk into a school and have to talk to people and do stuff and, and interact and would say, I'm introverted or I have, mm-hmm. the, you know, maybe that stuff came from that. Like you just, I literally take my kids and they want to, they do want to go to school and they want to have friends and meet people and see their teachers and all that stuff. But it is funny. Like I'm just dropping you off and I'll come back and get you later. And that's, that's what this is. And that's where I'm at. And it, I don't, when I think back to my school, I'm like, man, there's so much of it. I just feel like it just didn't matter at all, and they don't know that. They yeah, don't I just think it. keeping it as unimportant in the child's life is the way I look at. It. Like, just George, you have school. If you're doing school, you should do good. Keep up. Yeah, blend in. But it's not like school's super important or something. That's just something in our life. I don't like that mentality right. of, and this is your job, and you do. It's not like that. It's just there's a school yeah. or there's not or whatever. You should do well at the things you're doing and this is a good one to do for now this is the way i kind of hold that but i'm totally on my kid's side when they make mistakes a lot of times like i found a gigantic amount of candy wrappers behind george's bed <laughs> on, from that was from a halloween stash that oh I wow that you had. didn't know well i took all our halloween candy away and hid it somewhere but that she has clearly had found it in some intervening time and then had a thousand candy wrappers under behind her bed and i'm you know i'm so proud of her you know that's all i could you think. didn't yell like, at her i would have no, no i would have no, done no that. how could you how, that's not i would do that that's me yeah that's right that's, there's no way you were going to stop me from finding tang right. or uh ba- cake batter boxes from deep in the cabinet or any anything sugar cubes yeah. Country time lemonade powder. I mean, you wouldn't have been able to stop me from getting stuff if I had access to it. So I don't think you can blame a kid if they find a Halloween candy stash that they should have known and resisted. So I'm right. a, I was a, I'm quite quite proud. Um, so for our taboo topic of the day, you want to get into psych meds? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> We're not worried about Black Lives Matter, or education, or teachers, no. or nutrition, or anything else, but. 
psych meds. That might be the real taboo. Yeah, we're going to have Rose Yesha come on the show. She wrote a just an awesome article um, and v- really vulnerable and brave because a lot of people, I mean, I I think you're going to hear about it more and more, but you're right. Uh, psychological medicine, that medicines that folks are taking um, do have effects, and when you try to get off of them, they, who, know, who knows, or people are starting to experience more and more withdrawals and different things. So uh, she wrote an awesome article. I found it on uh, Madden America. And, uh, yeah, let's bring her on. Rose, can you hear us yet? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Connected. Sounds great. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Mm-hmm. So your guitar in the back, you were telling me on the email you were a musician as well. Yeah, that's my PRS. So uh, oh, That's awesome. Yeah, great. yeah. Uh, first band I was in, the guitar player had a purple PRS, and I was like, "That guitar is so awesome!" I just I, oh I yeah, it was, it was, it's sick, it's it sick. So PRS is so sick, yeah. 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 All right, well, uh, we'll we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, so we have Rose Ye- Yesha. Uh, you yeah. Hold a, you hold a PhD. I read this uh, in informatics systems and with concentration in health informatics and behavioral health analytics i can barely say that that was that was i was like whoa that's amazing yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell us tell, it's a lot tell more us what impressive that it's a lot more impressive than it sounds um yes yeah, so i created a hybrid algorithm that could automatically go in say to like a social media platform and just uh partition the data into clusters um so then healthcare clinicians could look at it and see you know what the what the biggest topics of concern were, um, especially when we're dealing with like addiction or behavioral health issues. I got my first degree in psychology, so that's why I went that route with my dissertation. That's fascinating. I have a little bit of trouble switching profiles to the band account to my main account. Is it harder than that to the algorithm? Um, not much harder. I don't think it's much harder. Yeah, I mean, you'd be you'd be fine. You'd be fine. Well, uh, uh, wh- where does somebody get an interest in those things, uh, though? Really, joke aside, to to go into something so technical and and deep, there must be a motivation there other than just for fun. Yeah, I just really wanted to help people, um, and I just always had an interest in computers and IT. I know I was good at it, um, and I just wanted to make you know a bigger impact. I worked with um, like veterans data and you know suicide data. Um, I gave talks at NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, um, you know, and my own experiences with uh, mental, the, the mental health system. Um, so all of that combined, you know, made me want to just just go for it. Um, yeah. So uh, something I think is really common is that, you know, people like to help people, they say, in the same way that you did. But typically mm-hmm. that will look like something... Uh, a lot of times that can be vague or superficial when in reality to help people is either something that's very difficult or expensive on the individual level or requires doing things that are either difficult to do, maybe informatics and things like that, or things that are taboo to talk about and discuss and go against what is really, if you're really trying to make a difference. So it seems like what you're doing checks a few of those boxes because mental health, medication, suicide, those are areas that I find uh, people don't really want you poking in around a lot. There's a lot of taboos there. Is that something you find as well? Yeah, and I actually had to leave my job um, about a year ago because I was so um, ill from the psychiatric medication withdrawal. Um, and I was still in the process of, you know, figuring out why, you know, why was I, you know, ill for so many years and 
Um, I kind of had a setback after a surgery I had had. Um, so now what helping for me looks like is, is, is very different. Um, I'm actually an admin in uh, some Benzo support communities. Um, I run my own support community called Pharmademics. Um, and I also read that, like, you know, writing that article um, that you all found me on, I'm at in America, um, you know, that was a little bit nerve wracking because I was really putting myself out there like, hey, this is my story. This is what's happened to me. Um, I wasn't expecting the reception that I got. I wasn't really sure, you know, how it would fit in. And I was so sick still when I wrote it. Um, you know, so to go from that, from being like just so sick that I could barely function to now actually being like an administrator and support communities, um, it's just, it's, it's been, it's been a ride. It's definitely that's been great. an adventure. Yeah, that's yeah. why and you just launched a podcast. Is that right? Yeah. The- so I did. So I had, um, I had a TEDx speaker, Dylan Lundgren. Um, he's an addiction recovery advocate. Um, he's been in recovery for about 16 or 17 years. Um, so we're going to, you know, hook up, you know, maybe have some more podcasts and I do live streams, um, in the Pharmademics Connect group where I talk about specific, I talk about specific, um, issues within psychiatric medication withdrawal. Um, and this is just something that is, um, very fringe. I mean, you don't really, you know, get a lot of communities talking about this because doctors in the medical community, they just seem to deny all of our claims about our symptoms, um, or that psych meds can be harmful. Um, you know, and then there's like the lack of informed consent issues. So, um, you know, I feel like I was thrown into this whole different world when I figured out what was actually happening to me, um, about a couple years ago, cause kind of like deep down, I always knew it was the drugs. Like I knew it was the medications, but I kept being told by doctors like, no, you're mentally ill. You know, you have anxiety of this, you have that. Um, and then I found these support communities. Like I literally typed in like benzo support into facebook and there were like thousands of members and they all had the same story as i did you know maybe they had some life issues some anxiety and they got put on these medications their doctors didn't tell them what could happen and now it's like years later and they're just totally like i don't know can i swear on this show yeah yeah definitely. <laughs> Hell yeah. so like they're just totally they're just totally fucked i mean like they can't work like a lot of them have gotten like divorces because their spouses just couldn't deal with it. Like they just, they can't do anything. And and it's like, nobody's talking about it. Like there's so much focus on the opioid epidemic, which it absolutely deserves um, and illicit drugs. But like, nobody talks about, you know, the other prescriptions and like the other side. Um, and it is taboo because, you know, you're going to get someone who's like, Hey, my great aunt, aunt Sally is on Prozac and it saved her life. And, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And we're not trying to deny that. We're also trying to be like, Hey, there's probably millions of us globally who are suffering because of the, because of these medications. And like, we had no idea, you know, it we, seems, we didn't know ourselves into it. it, it I, the, the, all these taboos, I step into, we step into them a lot for a lot of reasons from pastors to teachers, a lot of stuff around institutions and service to people and really taking care of people develops these because something about it is like, we all understand that without the this intervention, this medicine, this institution, there's many, many people who wouldn't even still be here, have any way of getting through. And so to, to challenge them, I think they hear, then what would have happened to the, this person that I care about or me or, you know, or I know at least one person over there that's doing a lot of good, so you can't talk negative about it, and it creates this whole area um, but I think it's important when people are brave enough to, you know, talk about it, share their stories. And Madden America is a really, uh, 
really good about that. Out of all, you know, they say all kinds of things I think are just insane sometimes, but they say things, they make claims, they really are out there uh, doing stuff. And I really uh, like a lot of what they do and I'm happy to get to talk to you um, a little bit today. So I think that's good common ground. Would you mind just going kind of through your story of medication and, and you know, from, from that narrative? Yeah, I, I, I was going to say that I stumbled upon you, Rose, with uh, your article, how one, one panic attack led to 15 years of psychiatric drugs. And what was, uh, you know, I, I always scan trying to, you know, <laughs> Uh, be careful with my time, what I'm going to read or not. And I scanned and I just saw some of the highlight stuff. I just saw Zoloft, Xanax, you know, a list of the drugs. And then I, I read the first paragraph and you just started it. So uh, it, it kind of made me a little emotional because I was like, wait, you, this story started when you were in high school, right? I mean, yeah. you were very young and I was like, whoa, hold on. This is somebody, obviously you're extremely smart, a brilliant person, and you have a real issue and you are trying to get help, and then it starts this life. But yeah, tell us a little bit about your story, this article that you wrote. Sure. So I was first um, psychiatrized, as we call it, when I was 17. Um, you know, I was going through a lot of life stress. I mean, I was always kind of an outsider, didn't have a lot of friends. Um, I had someone close to me who had a substance abuse disorder. I was bullied in school. I didn't really do well in high school. I mean, I wasn't doing well in my classes. Like I went to private school and um, I ended up having a panic attack and I didn't really know what was wrong with me. Um, I ended up, you know, in a psychiatrist's office and, you know, within like 10 minutes, she just told me that I had panic disorder, that I had a chemical imbalance and that Zoloft could treat it. And at the time it was like 2004. So like we didn't have Facebook. I mean, I think the biggest thing we probably had was like MySpace. Right. <laughs> you guys are, you guys all remember MySpace. Yeah. So like, I didn't really do a lot of research. I just thought, you know, I was 17. So like this, this, this doctor with all these fancy degrees is telling me I have a chemical imbalance and it sounded totally legit. I was like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, when I get a sinus infection, I take an antibiotic. Like I thought it was like the equivalent. Um, and within a week of taking Zoloft, I mean, I can't even describe um, how I felt. It was like my brain had just totally um, shut down. And then to counteract what had happened with the Zoloft, they put me on benzos. Um, and I kept asking them, you know, like, what are the side effects? Like, is there anything that can go wrong? And there was kind of pretty much nothing. I didn't know that I could form a dependency. I didn't know that I could get withdrawal symptoms. And, um, you know, I had periods of time where I, I guess, was healed. But during that first, I would say, year coming off of clonopin. I mean, you read my article, so you know, I had brain zaps, which is basically when you feel like you're having a seizure um, every day, like every day, pretty much all day. I had akathisia, which is just like this inability to sit still. Like my friends would see me on the phone and I'd just be like pacing back and forth at like hundred miles an hour. And I wouldn't even be conscious of it. And it felt like my body was trying to like escape my skin. It was just horrible. I mean, it was like, forget it, like, fuck anxiety, like, forget anxiety. This was, like, light years beyond that. Um, I was getting all these strange thoughts, like, these repetitive thoughts, um, and it's, like, every doctor I went to was, like, no, this is impossible. It's not from the meds. Like, this just sounds psychosomatic, which is just a fancy word for saying it's all in my head. Um, which is how you got there in the first place. You were mentally yeah. before you got there, and yeah. so everything else yeah. that happens must be because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so every, so like what happened to me is like, I would be off the clonopin, but then, you know, every few years or so I would hit a setback and the setback is essentially when, um, your brain loses the capacity to handle stress because 
you know, what benzodiazepines do, you know, why they work is they actually destabilize your brain. Um, so there is a sense of not permanent damage, but on some level, maybe, I mean, they stay in your neural synapses. So it could be like years later and you could be in a really stressful situation and you'll get thrown right back into withdrawal. I mean, you will, you will go right. It's almost like, it's almost like a trip. Like you'll, you'll either experience a large amount of stress or you'll smoke a little bit of pot or take some medication that, you know, you weren't chemically sensitive to before, like a painkiller and all your withdrawal symptoms will come back. So like every few years I would end up back on the benzos. I would end up back with like a new mental health diagnosis. And that cascaded for like 14 years until I had my waking up moment, you know? So you got uh, benzos. Let's try to define that class of, of uh, opiates people are pretty familiar with. But right away, yeah. you got uh, an antidepressant, Zoloft, and yep. Xanax as a benzo. Yeah. So the first Xanax, so the first benzodiazepine I tried was Xanax, and then that didn't really work. So I moved on to clonopin. Um, and what are benzos, though? You know, for for somebody if they were going to explain it or the effects of it or recreationally or whatever, what is the thing that benzos do to people? So benzodiazepines are central nervous system depressants, um, much similar to alcohol, um, but of course they're different. Um, the way they work is they actually downregulate your GABA receptors and, um, you know, they chill you out pretty quickly. Um, you know, when I first started taking clonopin, it was like a miracle. It was like, mm -hmm. wow, I can go out with my friends. I can do things again. But the problem is, is that they're not really meant to be taken for more, more than four to six weeks um, because of the potential you know, to get tolerant and dependent so quickly. And you say they they make you chilled out in the central nervous stuff. That's why it's dangerous. Like if you're drinking and stuff too, it's, it's because you just stop breathing because your nervous system is so dulled down. So yeah, you don't have anxiety. Great. But you add a little alcohol or, I mean, you're almost stopping breathing. Like it's suppressing your um, nervous system to the, to a serious degree. That's why you don't have anxiety any, for at that time. Does that sound right? Yeah. And actually, so a lot of people don't know this, but there's actually like an interplay between opioids and benzodiazepines. So over one third or about 33% of opioid fatalities, um, the individual also had a benzodiazepine in their system. So the mixture of benzos and opioids are extremely deadly um, because, you know, they cause respiratory depression. And if we look at, you know, the famous musicians that we've lost in the past few years, like Chris Cornell, Chester Bennington, you know, they were on benzos, they were on opioids. Um, I believe, I want to say it was Chris Cornell was on Ativan. Um, and I know his wife had spoken like publicly about it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's like a silent epidemic and it was on CNN. So there was a, there was a benzo crisis special on CNN. It, um, it was on the show. This is life with Lisa Ling. Um, and they did talk about Chris Cornell in the beginning. Um, but yeah, it's, but they don't knock you out like, uh, oxy does though it's not as it's not like you get that euphoric type of heroin like oxycontin or whatever it's not like that no. like opiate no no i mean it's definitely separate from opioids and what also separates it and this is important to distinguish is that the majority of people so like i'm part of the i'm an admin, administrator in the benzo warrior community which is one of the biggest benzo support groups on facebook and the difference is is that most of our members are dependent and not addicted. And what that means is that they never went above their as prescribed dosage. So they took their drugs as prescribed and still had their lives totally ruined. 
Um, while I know with, you know, and that's not to put the blame on opioid, you know, dependent uh, individuals or addicts, but it seems like in that case, they do end up taking more than prescribed or illegally obtaining, you know, more and more. And with benzos, like, we don't really see a lot of true benzo addicts. Um, it really is people who have just taken it as prescribed. Mm -hmm. I see. It's less. So it's an issue of dependence. It's, a, it's an issue this. of dependence and not. So it's a chemical mm -hmm. dependence, but not an addiction. Like I never, I never craved benzos. That's a thing. Is like right. I knew if I didn't take them, I would get sick, and so I continued to take them. But I never woke up thinking like I gotta, you know, abuse the shit. Like you know, I got to take as much as possible. Like I'm going to try to get more and go doctor shopping. Like that's not how it works with benzos. Um, and the pharmaceutical companies were very smart because when Valium came out, like in the sixties, and we all know that Rolling Stone song, uh, mother's little helper, which is about Valium, um, the little yellow pill. So they had dosages that were like 20 milligrams, 40 milligrams, 60 milligrams, which sounds like a lot, but then they came out with modern benzos like Xanax, Clonip, and Ativan. And they started saying, okay, well, you're just going to take a milligram. Well, a milligram of clonopin is the equivalent of 20 milligrams of Valium. And I didn't know that, you know, and, and actually a lot of us didn't know that. So we didn't even realize how potent of a drug we were taking um, because one milligram is one milligram, right? That doesn't sound like a big deal, um, but it's a very big deal. Mm -hmm. And the, that's a more, so it's a more concentrated thing, but Valium is a benzo. Yes, yes. And yeah. it's it's a longer, so it does have a longer half-life um, than some of these newer benzos, um, but it is like one of the original kind of OG benzos. That came and it was prescribed for women for being hysterical, because I mean, who could deal with that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like it's housewives. Right. And yeah, yeah, right. yeah. That was their condition that they had that was right. a, a disorder that they had. It was the women. They all had hysteria, and you know how they are. So you give them the Valium was the that was yeah, the, what the I mean, psychiatrists were doing too, in that yeah. day, right? I mean, men took it too. I guess it was just in the commercials. It was always like a like a housewife that was vacuuming, and it was yeah. kind of like she had three kids and she had right. a house to clean and you know dinner to make, etc. Yeah, no, I'm just teasing at the fact that they they would call that a disorder, and you know it's just a way to you know deal with whatever that was with a pill at the time even still it wasn't a good idea and we don't have the disorder of hysteria or homosexuality anymore in our dsm or anything you know what i mean but at the in the day that's how they were would deal with things was just try some medicine at it <laughs> kind of well thing. that's Seems what, to be it, the pattern it, even from your article that that word disorder is what stuck out stuck out to me how quickly you were told you have something wrong with you and your brain you have yeah. a disorder, and it was told you so quickly, and by somebody who was a professional, you're mm -hmm. like you said, with a bunch of degrees, and so of course you trust them because you yep. you knew you did have a, a panic attack. Yeah. And so, and that was one thing I was going to say though. At, after so you got on the medicine and it started causing issues, but so that were they still telling you it wasn't the medicine? It was it was you the the whole time. It was still just your and and then at what point? Did it kind of work? I mean, once you got on Klonopin, was Klonopin the one that you were like, well, maybe they're right? I mean, what what kept you going on with the drugs? So I think what would happen is, um, you know, first of all, yeah, like I would tell them about the brain zaps, which I didn't have before, you know, starting the medication um, and all my other crazy symptoms. And they would just keep telling me that it was part of like some mental illness. Um, but what kept me going is essentially, you know, when I would have this setback, right, when I would get into like, a period of stress or have like literally like one toke a pot or like some, 
you know, medicine that I was now chemically sensitive to, um, they would just put me back on the benzos because they didn't know what else to do. And like, it wouldn't really help. I mean, it, 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 it would kind of, you know, stabilize me a little bit, but it wasn't really the right move. You know, like somebody along the way should have been like, hey, your drug may be your problem, which interestingly enough is the title of the book by Peter Bregan, who's a Harvard trained psychiatrist who is actually anti-psychiatry. I mean, he writes about the dangers of these drugs. He's also written toxic psychiatry. Um, so like nobody, I saw all these professionals and I saw neurologists and cardiologists and general doctors and nobody along the way was like, hey, I think the benzos are your problem. You know, cause once you get that mental health diagnosis I almost feel like then you're a second class citizen, right? Then everybody's looking at you like you're nuts. You know, your, your right. symptoms are subjective all of a sudden they're biased. Um, they're psychosomatic. They're all in your head. That's um, the same as the, uh, the history with psychiatry though with yeah. institutionalization is the same way. Like this yeah. is less than, you're not in the institution, but yet you're, there's the, the class that prescribes it to keep these people, uh, it, you know, the second classness of that is less exaggerated, but reminds you of how you see in an institution where they give people meds and then tell them, don't listen to him. <laughs> also the yeah. fact that it seems like it, it, there is, it never could change or be cured or improve in a sense, right? Like, I mean, it, it seems like when we're talking about depression, anxiety, all stuff, like once you get that label and we're talking about the stigma of it here a, a little bit, but the, the deeper stigma of it is it never ends, even though they're giving you medication, they're prescribing you very strong medication potentially and don't know exactly. Uh, it seems like the, the data isn't clear on, I mean, there's lots of stories now we're coming out where, you know, the benzos are maybe more dangerous than we thought or causing more issue, but you, out of all your experiences and everything, uh, and all the pain stuff that you've gone through, it was still just you and your problem. Like, and it doesn't improve. Like, I mean, when people talk about, uh, taking medic, talk about, uh, mental health medication, um, and, and compare it to other drugs, well, the other, or other sicknesses or illnesses or whatever, oftentimes those drugs will help fix the problem. You know what I mean? Like yep. if you, if you take pain medication, it fixes the pain until your arm is healed from being broken or something like, right. But, but yours, yeah. it, it seemed like, Oh no, well, let's just throw something else at it. It feels like kind of yeah. like you were a dartboard. Oh, like a Guinea pig. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and the thing is, is the chemical imbalance theory, that was just a theory. Like it's never been proven. And there's even psychiatrists now who have debunked that theory and they don't believe in it anymore, you know, because initially I was told, Oh, you have, anxiety or panic disorder, you have a chemical imbalance. And it sounded legitimate. Like to me, it sounded like science, right? But there's absolutely no science behind it. Um, and there's a really good, like, this is like the text, you know, that anybody should read is Anatomy of an Epidemic um, by Robert Whitaker. He was actually like third in line to win Pulitzer Prize for it. And what he talks about is when you look at these blockbuster drugs that were introduced in the 1980s, Big Pharma sold a narrative. They sold this narrative of people having a chemical imbalance, people needing a drug to fix this chemical imbalance, and then looking at why the suicide rate and the dis disability rate has actually doubled or even tripled in the United States, despite the fact that we're treating all these people. Um, so it's just a very you know, interesting and objective text to look at because this is real data that we're looking at. It's like, well, if these drugs are working, why are more people committing suicide? Why are more people having to go on disability specifically for mental health reasons and children 
that like, so like disability for children has also increased since the introduction of these drugs and, mm. you know, causation doesn't equal correlation, blah, blah, but, you know, you know, we can't deny these, these, these facts. There's a couple of ways to look at it from that way. You could say that maybe suicide and mental health has gotten worse because just conditions have gotten worse, so it couldn't even keep up. With the drugs are helping a ton. You should see how bad it would be if we didn't have these drugs. But you would also have to ask the question the other way, too, at least that. And then when you have something decades old, like a chemical imbalance theory or something, um, and it seems, and, that, and you start basing stuff on that, you would think the data would come out over the 20 years to validate versus not. And if, if not, there's, somebody's got some splaining to do, the way I look yeah. at it. So there's not, still yeah. not any good explanation of how this stuff works in the brain. It's like not very technical as far as what happens and how and how does it affect one in one's life and with one's problems with living. That doesn't, there's not very much explanation of how the drugs work by the people that both receive them or give them. Yeah, and I think informed consent is a huge issue because, you know, I wasn't told that my life could be pretty much destroyed by these medications. Like, I think when I got put on Zoloft, she told me that maybe my anxiety would get a little bit worse and I could experience some nausea. And then I think, you know, down the line, it was maybe, I don't know, four or five months later, I actually ended up in the psych unit. Um, luckily, I wasn't there overnight, but I was having a bad reaction to another drug they had tried me on. This is in my article. Um, it was Paxil. It was one dose of Paxil. And so there's all these doctors there, and all I'm trying to tell them is, look, like I've taken this drug, and it's causing me these issues, and all they want to do is keep me there and try me on more drugs. So, I mean, this is just totally like, you know, this defies logic and reason. You know, it's totally nonsensical. Like, if I'm having a bad reaction to one drug, like why try other drugs and why not listen to the patient? Um, and I was very fortunate that, you know, recently I did find a practitioner who believed my story and who did believe that I was injured by the meds. So there does exist a minority of psychiatrists who have even written for Madden America. This is the interesting thing about Madden America is you would think like, oh, psychiatrists are probably against the site because it, you know, I wouldn't say trash is psychiatry, but you know, it's critical of psychiatry. Um, but there are psychiatrists who write for Mad in America and are like, hey, yeah, this is happening. And mm -hmm. there was a psychiatrist um, in the UK, actually, who he himself, um, actually, there's been several psychiatrists who have also gone through this process of being on medication and barely making it out alive. Um, we lose people to suicide in our support groups every month, and it gets labeled as a suicide from mental illness, but it's not. It's a suicide from they can't deal with the withdrawal anymore. We have ex-heroin addicts in our support groups who have said that getting off of benzos is way harder than getting off of heroin. Like getting off of heroin was very difficult, but there was like a timeline of like, okay, it's going to suck. You know, things are going to be fucking awful for a few months or however long. But with benzos, like you can be in protracted withdrawal for years. Like you can continue to experience symptoms for years and years to come. Um, tapers also. So like I know people who have been tapering Xanax for six years. For six years, they've had to be tapering. Um, Good Lord. Yeah. Um, and insane. I'm still in the process of tapering psych meds, and I have medication alarms on my phone. I have to dose three times a day, liquid. I have to use a syringe. Um, like, why is this my life? You know, like, right. it's, it's, just, it's just crazy. Um, 
can you explain a little bit when you say withdrawal? So you take so obviously like other meds, you want to take the medication and then get off of it. And so you was this your decision or is are are they telling you like you said? I think you said earlier that these drugs were only meant to be taken for a few weeks, six weeks, or something like that. So the idea is to get off of them. But most a lot of people uh, are on them for a long time. But you did you make the decision to get off, or did they they tell you to get off? And then what is the withdrawal like? What does it do to you? Um, so they did not tell me to get off. They wanted to try me on a bunch of other stuff. And at some point I was willing to do that. And then I was like, no, I have to get off the shit. Um, and you know, the withdrawal is excruciating. Like if I miss, if I miss a dose, right. So I dose three times a day. If I miss a dose, like at night and I wake up, like, I feel like I'm in Dante's Inferno. I mean, like, it's just a total like acid trip nightmare. Um, I get intrusive thoughts, you know, kind of like repetitive thoughts. Um, I did deal with really horrible nerve pain, which felt like I was literally having a stroke while being shot in the head. Like I'd be having like ice on my head every day. Um, I could barely function. Um, I was waking up at like five in the afternoon cause I was essentially drugging myself with a bunch of Benadryl just to like get through it all. Um, so it's, it's nasty. I mean, it's probably the most inhumane thing that somebody can, can go through is going through this. Um, and this is even coming from illicit drug users who have gone through like heroin addiction and Coke addiction, opioid addiction. And they're saying benzos are actually worse than all of that. Did, did they, so it started, you had a panic attack. Did they start changing your diagnosis? Did they start saying, well, uh, maybe you were misdiagnosed as a panic attack. Maybe you have something else wrong with you or what? Oh yeah. I mean, then it changed to like generalized anxiety disorder and major depression. Um, I think because I started developing these intrusive thoughts, which are actually very common in benzo withdrawal, then I got a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, I once got a diagnosis of bipolar disorder only based on the fact that I had told them that I reacted poorly to SSRIs and they were like, oh, well that can be indicative of bipolar disorder because you reacted poorly to these medications. So at this point, it's just like pretty meaningless. Um, and it, it, it's actually interesting because the chair of the DSM-4 committee, so DSM is, you know, the, the, the big book with all the diagnoses, he actually said normal is in danger because pretty much anybody can be diagnosed with anything. You know, you walk into an office, you have some, some trouble, you know, with your spouse or life or whatever, right? You're going to get diagnosed with something. Right. And, and this is not a disorder. This is a thing like this is just dealing with life. And like when I had my panic attack, like that was me reacting to my circumstances in life. You know, that wasn't some pathology or chemical imbalance. I just needed somebody to talk to probably, you know, mm -hmm. like I just didn't right. have the right support system. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that I went to the doctor. Um, this is this is a true story. I was having uh, trouble with my knees and my feet, so I went to a doctor, uh, and he's more of a sports medicine guy, but he was really nice. And I, I was like, oh, this guy's really good. This is when I lived in Seattle, Matt. And, uh, but I was also having a, a little bit of an eye issue. I would get this, they call it a scintillating scotoma, um, where it's like my eyes would kind of do the tunnel vision for a little bit or whatever. And I told him about that. I was like, sometimes, he said, it's, I said, it's really weird. Sometimes I'll, I'll walk in from like it being bright outside, and I'll go into a dark room, and this thing will happen. And he said, hmm. are, are, you, are you having a lot of stress? I said, well, maybe some. But he was like, yeah, I think, I think you actually are having a lot of stress. I'm going to prescribe you something. And I was like, okay. And he didn't even really tell me what it was. And then I went to the – he said, this will help you with your stress. And I didn't really ask him. I just, I mean, this was back in 2011. But still, I mean, I guess it, it's 
you know, getting more popular even then, but I didn't really ask many questions because I was there for my knees and my feet. Yeah. And, uh, and I went to the, uh, Walgreens and it was, I think it was Xanax. It might've been Zoloft. It was Xanax okay. or Zoloft one. And uh, I, it wasn't even that expensive. And it was a big bunch of pills and said, okay, now this is what you need to do. It said, this is for a stress disorder or, or anxiety disorder. I think that's what the pharmacist told me and said, you'll take this and this will help you handle your life. And I remember I walked out and I sat in my car and I just looked at that bottle and I was like, I think if I take this, I might always take this or I might always take something. I said, I, yeah. And I, I really just, I feel honestly lucky or blessed. I asked myself, I said, is your anxiety that bad that you need this? What, that, I think the doctor was being nice. I think he thought he was taking care of me, helping me. Maybe mm-hmm. he thought that my, my eye issue was caused by that. And, and maybe it was even caused by stress. That, that, mm-hmm. I'm not even saying that wasn't. But at that moment, I just thought, if I take this, this might be me from now on. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I might take this medication. And so I never did. I left it in my car for about a week. And then I was like, I, I'm just going to see if I can make it. And then, I, you know, and I mean, I've definitely had a, a panic attack since then. I've had a few, you know, some episodes here and there with, with stuff. And, and and I might be an outlier, but it I, I was so surprised at how easy it was. Like, it, you most times you walk in and ask for something, they at least... There's ways to check you out and say stuff, but like you can walk in and say, "Oh, this," and they go, "Well, that here you go." You know what I mean? Like you, you can't do that with other other stuff. Like if you said, "Oh, I'm in tons of pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need you know s- some serious Percocets," they might would be a little bit, you know, "Hey, well, hold on, let's watch out with the Percocets." Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount you would be taking, uh, it was very easy for me to get it, and I just I just made that decision. Um, and and I, I hope people listening too, I do believe that this medication can work for some people, but the idea of not being able to ask questions or seeing two sides of it, that's what I love about Madden America. I, I, yeah. I'm not, I believe depression and anxiety is, is real. I believe there's disorders. I believe medication is needed for folks, but the, the idea that you can't ask questions about it. And if you do, you're the bad person that, cause you know, it works so well for your you know loved one. That's what the, bumps me out. Like I, I want to be able to ask questions about it and learn more about it and see, because it is so easy. And I don't, it, it does seem like it's something that it, it just kind of throwing a dart at a dartboard. And if this works, okay. And if not, let's, let's try something else. When obviously, you know, like you said, maybe if they would have started you with, Hey, you, you need to talk to somebody. Let's, let's, yeah. let's let, you know, I mean, you, you're going through some stuff. You maybe you have, you've been bullied. You've, you know, you you feel like an outsider. There's, uh, obviously there's some, some things there that would work as well. There's a real confluence of stuff going on. And even in just what you said there, Toby, from the, like, cause if you try to figure out the doctor's point of view, it's not nefarious. I right. mean, like you could say the pharma group, I mean, you could, maybe there's that point of view, but you could say big pharma. Okay. Here's the business model. We get everybody on it and then you stay on it. And if we can get general practitioners that look at knees to be able to describe it, that would be good for our business model. Like you can see that as a cynical part, right. but it wouldn't make sense for the doctors and psychiatrists that for sure get into that work to help people in their view to not want to help people. But it gets weird, I guess, for the psychiatrist to not be able to help people. So he goes, well, I got to do something for them, you know, and they they get that, you know, it's just it's the whole business model of, of it. So what are they going to do? Tell you nothing? Like if you go in for an appointment and mental health's on the table and they tell you, you know, they know that things have gone wrong in your life for you to be there and they want to help and they think maybe you're at risk and we maybe just need to kind of get this person like it's like admitting somebody to a mental institution would that be a way to help them if you were a warden 
you know? Like you would think right. it was. You would think it was helpful to, you know what, we'll take this in as a patient. I'm sure we can help them. That would feel like you're helping them. Right. Yeah. And so and I I mu- the doctors must feel that way. I think it's a really complicated process, Matt, too, because um, sometimes it's not necessarily easy for a doctor to identify what's a withdrawal s- symptom and what's, you know, a mental illness symptom um, because they can look, you know, very similar. And I know a lot of people in my support group, they're experiencing withdrawal symptoms that are getting them diagnosed with all these new mental health conditions they never had before. So I think there are doctors who truly like they wanted to help and maybe they themselves didn't know how dangerous these medications are. But the thing is, is like, you know, if a lot of people knew what could happen, if you took these medications, they probably wouldn't take them. So I think this whole issue of informed consent um, just becomes the spider web of like, okay, well, if people are feeling bad, this is all we have, right? They don't right. have any other tools in their toolbox. I mean, right. yeah, you can do therapy, but if someone's really desperate and they've tried therapy, like, you know, someone might say, oh, well, you need to like diet and exercise, but if you're laying in bed all day, you're not gonna do that either. So, right. you know, I can't deny the fact that these meds do help some people. Um, but like with Toby, like you definitely dodged a bullet not taking those medications. Um, I'm very interested in, you know, looking at musicians, um, you know, historically who have taken this medications like Jonathan Davis from Corn. He wrote a whole article and he was like, Xanax is the fucking devil. And he just went into this whole thing about, you know, his issues with Xanax. Stevie Nicks, she told um, the world about her dependence on Clonopin and how it's probably the reason that she never had kids. Um, and she described it as being worse than her coke addiction. Um, so it's like, but somehow still it's getting lost in translation. We're still, you know, we're, we're highlighting these psychiatric drugs as something very, very positive. Like nobody mm-hmm. is really talking about the other side. And that's why I'm at in America, which is a web design that was created, you know, by Robert Whitaker, the author of Anatomy and Epidemic. That's why it's so important because then you get all these stories of all these people um, who, you know, have had their lives completely just ruined by these meds. There are people who probably are so bad off um, that they will never be able to get off their medication. Mm-hmm. Um, they've just been taking it so long and that their withdrawal symptoms are so bad that getting off of the meds may never be an option for them. And mm-hmm. they didn't know that going in. That's a thing. Like nobody told them that. Right. But there's also people that weren't going to make it in life anyway. And the medicine could perhaps help them. So, you know, like if you there's some people that are not in the position to keep up with life and handle everything with their configuration of their mind and their brain and their environment that that describes a certain amount of people. And if the medication can help them, that's great. But there's other people that might could. And then if you put them on the medication, it could not be helpful to them. Just like some kids, school's the best place they spend the their hours in the day that's the safest compared to their environment and for some it is a a, you know a place that they have to go or whatever for a period just it it intersects with different parts of the population in different ways and it certainly isn't a one-size-fits-all so you know to not to deny people a, a type of treatment that could help them or keep them around seems like that's one of the reasons why people don't want to down talk it because man, some people need this medication and you're and you're sending this message like, well, you just need to toughen up and not take the meds. Well, that's not gonna work for a lot of people, especially people that have already been on it a long time. It might just be true that you should have never got on it, but that oh well, this is what you're gonna be. 
Like that's a harsh, harsh reality. And it is a reality, but it's not one that anybody gets any benefit out of talking about, kind of typically. So it just doesn't get talked about. But another factor in there with these doctors that makes me feel bad for the doctors, not blame them, is they don't get told the truth by the patients often. You know, I know people that have, you know, interchanges with doctors and they don't give the doctor or the psychiatrist the accurate point of view of their life. You know, sometimes that the patient believes that what they simply need is a chemical fix. They don't, yeah. they won't acknowledge to themselves that they're having real problems. And then they won't even tell the, the doc, their, their general doctor that looks at their elbow. They're not going to go into what's wrong with their life with him, but yet he could prescribe this medication. You know? Yeah. I mean, that, that could be true. I mean, that's fair, but I think that there have been, you know, a plethora of psychiatrists who have been completely complicit and diagnosing people way too early and then, you know, denying uh, iatrogenic injury um, from these medications. You know, when I was walking in with brain zaps and I was telling my psychiatrist like, hey, it feels like there's electricity in my head. I mean, you know, I can't read her mind, but I think at that point, you know, she should have been like, hey, Rose didn't have these symptoms, you know, before the medication. And at this point, you know, we're in 2021 now, with all the information, I mean, you just have to do a quick Google search. So if you go to like um, benzobuddies.org or surviving depressants, surviving antidepressants.org, they're getting like millions of hits, which means that there's like literally like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people looking for support for getting off of these medications. So it's like, yeah, maybe they do help some people, but in my opinion, they're doing more harm than, than, than good. And when we're talking about children, it's like all of a sudden yeah. all these children are ADD, right? Like every child right. is ADD. And it's kind of like, well, they're kids. I mean, you know, they're just right. they're just being kids. And now, you know, they're on Adderall and Ritalin and, and all, all this stuff that's basically like, you know, speed, but it's in a prescription bottle. So you don't think of it as like a, you know, as like a real drug. Like I remember when I was in school, all these people would get extra time to take tests and I didn't really understand why. Um, and they would be like, oh, those people are ADD. Or like I would go to the school nurse and there would literally be a line of people waiting for meds. And I asked them and I'm like, well, what are they all waiting for? And they're like, oh, well, they're waiting for their Ritalin. Right. And it's like, so Children, all yeah. these kids, did they really all have attention deficit disorder, right? Or was this, because we know that big pharma, especially in the past, like they would advertise to schools. Like they would have pamphlets with like these little checklists of like, do you have ADD or does your kid have ADD? And it was like these very vague and broad questions. And essentially the purpose was to get your kid on yeah. an ADHD medication, which was usually a stimulant, right? Um, and there have even been studies now that show that kids who took stimulants, um, you know, grow up as adults and then they ended up addicted to Coke. You know, there, there have been scientific research studies about this. So it's, I mean, it, it's, that's, that's why the book was written, Anatomy of an Epidemic, because it is an epidemic. And I'm not denying that these medications can help some people you know, there are some people who can't live without them. They can't function. But when we look at the other side, I don't think society is looking at the other side right. enough, you know? Yeah. And yeah. then I want to ask you the question too. You talk about micro tapering. That is something that it sounds new to me. Like I haven't really heard much about that. It's just because most medication you just get off of, but you're saying that these drugs, you have to do it a certain way where it could be dangerous, right? Yeah. So when I was first taken off, um, Clonopin, it was within a week. It was like, I had a pill cutter 
and I was going at these, you know, it was just a very fast rate of taper. Um, and with micro tapering, I mean, it literally means maybe only cutting one or 2% every like two to four weeks. And that's why some people end up tapering for six years because, you know, your nervous system has just become, um, you know, so jacked up that you can't handle a faster rate of taper. Um, and that's essentially what happened to me. You know, I, I had to micro taper because there was no other way for me to get off of the medication. I couldn't handle these big cuts. Um, and this is something in the lay person community. So this isn't even something that was recommended by medical doctors. This is something that, you know, kind of evolved over time. Um, one of the, you know, medical doctors who did talk about this was Professor Heather Ashton, and she created the Ashton Manual, which is essentially this kind of, um, it's almost like the Bible of benzodiazepines, if you want to think about it that way. I mean, it goes into like all the symptoms and withdrawal and, you know, micro tapering methods, et cetera. Um, but it was really the layperson community, like volunteers like me, like I'm an admin who, you know, would guide people through this process. And, you know, there's a lot of different methods. Um, the benzo crisis special, which I can definitely link to you guys on CNN, um, actually shows somebody doing a water taper. And it's, it's a lot. I mean, you almost have to become like, a breaking bad type chemist. <laughs> no, really. I mean, you know, you have to like, you know, know what you're doing and how to mix it in the water and get your syringe and weigh it. I mean, it's, it's, it's just insane. I mean, I never thought that I would have to become an expert in something right. like this, you know, like I never wanted this to be my life. You're still um, not off. Are you, will you be able to be off ever? Or are you just are trying to minimize it? Yeah. So like currently I'm, so currently I'm tapering um, gabapentin, which is a nerve pain medication. And it's a medication that I was put on to deal with the side effects from my cold turkey off of clonopin. I had a doctor actually, um, when I told him I had side effects, he had just cut me off cold turkey um, because he said he didn't, he essentially said he didn't want any liability. Um, and so I'm tapering that. And then once I'm done with that taper, I will be tapering my benzodiazepine, I have crossed over to a benzodiazepine called Tranxine, which is similar to Valium in the fact that it's like, it has a long half-life. Um, so it doesn't have that potency of like Clonopin or Xanax where it hits you right away. Um, and we've seen a lot of people just have success with crossing over um, because then they're not getting that. I mean, it's not the same, but it's almost like if you think about people who take opioids and then end up on Suboxone. So that's mm -hmm. kind of like our version of like heroin to methadone or like opioid right. to suboxone. Like we go to Valium or something that's hmm. long acting, but I, it will probably take me if I would have to guess at least another year or two until I'm like fully off of everything. The right. methadone is a good parallel. You see people on methadone. I mean, so if people get addicted to opiates and they can wind up on methadone and then they're at the clinic, they have to go to get a crappy drug that's never as good as the heroin and they'll do that. Most people their whole life will be on the couch and their at their parents and they'll minister or whatever. But they say when people who are high performers in the world, let's say doctors, when they get addicted to opioids, which they do a lot because they're addictive and they have access, they never ever take methadone. <laughs> you oh, know, that's really. interesting. They, I actually, like, didn't no, even I, know I, that. I shouldn't say yeah. never ever, but they when when they're front confronted with getting on Suboxone or methadone, they'll sit there and go, "I'm going to deal with this withdrawal because they." you know, they understand that that's, that's even, they say the methadone's harder to get off than heroin. Like heroin's yeah. bad to get off, but it yeah. makes you feel really, really terrible for X amount of days and you're, you're kind of off. But these more, these other the Suboxone and methadone are much, they're not 
good, awesome to use like heroin. They just keep you there, and they're not easy to get off at all. They're, they they become chemically complex in your system, I think, in a different way. Also, I will say this. I looked it up last night. I don't have it here, but I, I just typed in. I knew you were coming on, Rose. So I was like, I'll just look this up. Um, top drugs sold just in America, and in the top 15, I think seven of them were, I guess, benzos. I, I forget. Yeah. The, number four was... I forget what it was, but it was one of the big ones. Probably um, Xanax, if I have it, to guess. It, it, it might have been Xanax. It might have been the... Uh, or Ativan or Clonopin. Yeah, it was one of those. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll have to look it up. I'm, I know I'm, I, I should... I wish I had that data right here. But I was like, well, I mean, if that... If it's that popular of a drug, of course, the business of selling drugs doesn't want that to end. Like, it, no. if, if there was if there was a way to handle mental health without drugs or with less drugs maybe or with more time before it was prescribed that would be bad for business for sure well it's yeah. it doesn't matter if it's you know minty fresh toothpaste the point would be you would feel crazy if you didn't use it on a certain day right right it's that's a good feature of the product <laughs> well and a so, lot what a lot of people don't realize is that you know people will come and be like oh well there's been all these clinical trials and this and this you know this that and the other and what they don't realize is that these clinical trials, they only lasted for six weeks. And six weeks is usually a time where people haven't experienced the really bad side effects yet. Another thing people don't realize is that a lot of these research articles, they were actually ghostwritten, which essentially means that they had an author that's unknown who wrote this article, who praised this particular you know, pharmaceutical of choice. They found some famous person they wrote their checkmark signature. There you go. You know, now we have a Harvard psychiatrist who has said Prozac is the new Pansia, you know, you know, yeah. and it's going to work for everybody and it's, and it's effective. Um, so people just don't even realize, you know, the level of, of fraud behind it. I mean, I'm just going to call it for what it is. Um, and I think a lot of people are probably aware of that already. Um, so when we look at big pharma, when we look at the intersection of psychiatry, it was very easy because there's no blood test, right? Like if you have a heart problem, they can measure your blood pressure, right? They can do, right. they can do an EKG on you. But like, if you have a mental health issue, like it's just, it's super easy. And especially we're dealing with a really vulnerable population. Um, and this is actually what I was talking to um, Dylan about recently. So he was on my po my pilot podcast and he wrote an article for Madden America called how many pills does it take to get sober, right? Because you go into rehab and you want to get off something like crack cocaine or heroin or whatever, they might put you on a benzo, right? Yeah. And now yeah. you're going from your crack problem, now you have a benzo problem, or they might put you on gabapentin. Now you're hooked on gabapentin. Um, so it's just, it's crazy because now they're creating drugs to address the problems of the other drugs. And it's just like a never ending, it's a never ending cycle. Mm -hmm. The whole right. territory here, um, there's a whole field or movement, I guess probably it is, anti-psychiatry that you mentioned. Um, and I'm not even sure how to uh, to address that or speak about it because it's a lot of psychiatrists that are in it. They're people that go into the field and then they, for good reasons, obviously. And then when you get there, you see maybe the inside of it, like it is with any industry, you know, any industry I've been in, I go, oh, from the inside, it's quite different, whether it be church or music or whatever I've been inside of deeply. And so you get a good amount of these people who really do know, who have these very 
you know, anti-psychiatry and point out the flaws, but it's just a very underground kind of feeling about that whole movement, and it's easy to target and tarnish them, and it's not easy to speak up. But I know at least two people that work oh, – more. I guess I know more than two, but in mental health – professionally and they agree with much of what we are saying today and they don't they just what can they do they can't say they don't say it you know i mean it's very tricky because the narrative that has been pushed is that these medications do help and again like i consider myself not anti-psychiatry but critical of psychiatry mm -hmm. because i see the need for psychiatrists to intervene and to help us and there's Mm -hmm. actually a psychiatrist by the name of Mark Horowitz in the UK. And he is going to be establishing the first deprescribing clinic in the entire world. So, I mean, this is huge. So he actually, you know, struggled with psychiatric medication himself. And now he's creating this deprescribing clinic because he's, you know, seeing the need from it. Um, it's been being head being um head by another psychiatrist, Joanna Moncrief. Um, and this is just amazing. And so that's why I don't really align myself with somebody who's anti-psychiatry because I'm like, Hey, there are psychiatrists who want to help, you know, just like I found somebody who believed in my injury and who actually was on mad in America himself. And he probably saved my life because even hearing from a psychiatrist that it wasn't my mental illness and that it was all the meds. I mean, that was everything for me, you know, getting that validation. There was another psychiatrist I talked to and I had tears in my eyes because he apologized to me. He said, Rose, I am sorry on behalf of psychiatry for what has happened to you. And like having that moment with the psychiatrist was incredible because I never thought that any psychiatrist would admit any wrongdoing to me. Well, they would be afraid of a lawsuit, of course, for good yeah. reason to typically. That is a rare moment. I'm glad you got to experience that. But the, first of all, that nobody likes to admit that they're wrong, especially when they're interventional on another person with large effects. And to be le- legal, legally possibly liable for it, you can imagine why it wouldn't be common if we've been overdoing it one side, why admitting it would not be easy for anyone. Well, that's so, what I was going to ask you, Rose. Special. What do you- do you think that the future holds a bunch of lawsuits? Like, I mean, these these are highly prescribed drugs, and if there's more and more issues, like you said, millions of people are looking at some of these sites, do you think that, that there's going to be some real trouble for some of these psychiatrists and doctors that prescribe these methods? Um, I think, you know, the lawsuits have centered more around the pharmaceutical companies, and if you Google it, there were so many people who committed suicide from the drug Prozac in the 90s that they actually – called the lawsuits the Prozac suicides, and it was almost banned in the UK. I don't know why it's still on the market, you know, given how many people ended their lives over Prozac. But um, the problem is with the generics, because mostly people are taking generic drugs. And from my understanding, if you're on a generic, you can't sue. I mean, it's pretty much like untouchable. Um, But there are lawsuits and, you know, like Dr. Peter Bregan, the the psychiatrist who's actually anti-psychiatry that I mentioned, he's given expert testimony And, you know, he's been involved in cases that have amounted to like billions of dollars, but that's kind of like maybe a drop in the bucket for some of these companies. Right. Right. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think there will be future lawsuits, but the problem is, I mean, they're so powerful. They're these giants and with the generics, we can't really touch them. So I don't know legally what's, what's going to happen in the future. 
It could be long term where, you know, we still see mesothelioma commercials on TV, you know, in 20 years. You'll be a did. Was your life ruined by benzodiazepines? Call now, you know, like right. that could it's be gonna our, take you know, a long time. This, there is long so COVID. finally. So finally, they did the FDA did slap on a black box warning a few months ago on benzo. So after 60 years, after 60 years of benzos being on the market and people being harmed, we finally got our black box warning. It's kind of like slow clap, you know, from the FDA. Right for putting the black box warning on there. And that's just to cover their ass. You know, right. that's not, you know, um, we've known that benzos are bad for for a long time. It's kind of like with opioids. They, they they originally said that they weren't addictive and they were fine to take. They put heroin in like cough syrup, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we also like, we're living in a time where people are denying the harm that opioids caused. And then there are a bunch of lawsuits and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know, it's gonna be well, interesting. Uh- I was going to say the saddest part about all of this is that that we're talking about real people here who have real issues, you know, uh, might have intrusive thoughts or uh, panic attacks that are manifesting themselves uh, physically, anxiety. I mean, real issues, real problems. And then, of course, one of these drugs seems like just such a godsend in a way. Like, oh, finally, you know, I, I admit it, you know. I have so much anxiety, so much fear, so much worry. I can't control my thoughts. What you know, intrusive thoughts. What you know, negativity, suicidal thoughts. All these things, and and that's what makes me so sad. Is people are trying to look for help, and then the answer seems so simple and easy. But then it, you find out underneath, it's like the top of the iceberg. Underneath is all this other stuff that comes with it. That, like you said, uh, hasn't really been talked about. The the, the level of consent. To be able to get these drugs, it, it, we haven't really gotten there to explain it to the patient. Wait a minute, I know you need help. I know this, but this is what's going to also po- potentially be there. Yeah, and I would like to mention that um, uh, there is a new documentary called "Medicating Normal." Um, so they're in virtual screening mode right now. It will probably end up on like Netflix or Amazon Prime once they work out all the agreements. But um, it basically follows four people who we're never told about the side effects of the medications um, and how it, you know, really destroyed their lives. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something everybody should watch. I think medicating normal is a film. Everybody should watch um, maybe especially parents because, you know, kids, I was, I was 17, but really I was, I was in high school um, and I was prescribed a drug that was harder to get off of than, than heroin. And here I am, you know, all these years later and half my life has been kind of, you know, in, in a sense, taken away by by psychiatry and this this narrative that I was taught. Yeah, but the children is the most, you know, scary of all. I, when I think back about it, I recall very distinctly, um, you know, p- uh, it, p- people wanting to label, diagnose, and medicate me. <laughs> I, yeah. I avoided it, you know, I mean, but actively and over the period of many years, you know, my whole childhood was avoiding that in a way. Um, and part of that was your strong mother. Yeah, she. I mean, I was. I, I was really defend lucky. you in a sense. Yeah, I was lucky. I mean, she didn't. You didn't. Did even playing guitar help? Did it help? I didn't play guitar until later. I mean, it just was. It just was. I was either going to be, you know, a, a gifted kid or a special education kid or something, but not a regular kid or something. So what? Give him a label. Give him a drug. Put him in a different class. Get do something with this kid. <laughs> You know, um, and, and so it did, any of those would have worked for any as far as whatever. But the chemical one, uh, I'm glad I avoided. I tried. I've tried all the other things. I try everything. I'm, I'm open minded to what I am and what I should be and how I ought to behave or change my behavior. But the, that one, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad to avoid labels and chemicals. Um, I'm glad to have done that in my at least through my childhood so that I could choose at least now. Yeah. You know, I, 
I'll tell you too, in this, especially during this pandemic we're living through. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, that's been the most heartbreaking thing to me is the lack of discussion about mental health during this. I mean, I think people are kind of saying, I'm tired of being locked down or, but I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, it looks like the stats are suicides up and then the idea of not going out and getting your med. I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if you know or have statistics on that or, or on pharmatics if, if people have been talking about that, but I mean, maybe not going out and getting your meds because you were scared to get COVID or something like that. And then you're going through withdrawals and what that caused. I mean, there's a huge mental health crisis just from COVID for sure. I mean, besides just getting it and dying, the, the, it seems like this is another epidemic of mental health uh, that goes right along with that. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something that I talked about in pharmademics or at least referenced is that the prescriptions for anti-anxiety medications went up by 34% during the pandemic. Um, And that's just very sad. And I mean, I can understand that like people can't sleep, they've lost their jobs, they don't know what's going on, are they going to get sick, is their relative going to die? But they don't realize what they're getting themselves into. And also, if we look at like the suicide rate, like that's gone up during the pandemic, opioid fatalities have gone up like five or six fold because people can't get to their NA meetings um, you know, and, and the virtual NA meetings are not are not the same. Um, in terms of, you know, your original question of people not being able to get their medication. Um, yeah, there have been people who have been scared to get COVID getting their medication, um, especially if you're taking a controlled substance, they can't give it to you for more than 30 days. So you can't have this backlog of like 90 days of medication. Um, so that's created a huge issue too. Um, and I think just, you know, if you're going through withdrawal, like I am, and you can't be social and you can't be like, I used to go to open mics and I've been to a couple bands. Like that was kind of catastrophic for me because I couldn't do that anymore. And it's right. like, well, I guess I'll just lay in my bed and, you know, deal with my withdrawal. Like I can't go out and play music or listen to live music anymore. Um, you know, I still play some on my own, um, but it's, it's, it's definitely not the same. So I think, you know, coping during the pandemic while going through withdrawal, you know, it's, it's, right. it comes with its own for sure. battles. Replacing that activity, like you said, the creative, social, pro-social, community-based activity with looking at your screen of outrage is not something that helps one's anxiety either. Yeah. You know, that's a, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic recognizing, oh my gosh, this is so intense. I'm an, I'm a up, keyed up person and I'm on another level now absorbing this information that I cannot do anything about. And to me, that's the feeling of anxiety is I had unlimited motivation to save my life, to save my family. And what can I do? Scroll and find out more bad news. That's that's the definition of anxiety. But to me, I would call it motivation. So all I have been able to do is just stay extremely active. That's what I'm supposed to do. I mean, Maybe some medicine could help me. I'm not even saying it can't, but it'll at least be a combination of factors. So the pandemic is a double whammy because the pr- productive stuff that I used to could w- could and would do, I've now got to figure out another way to do it from my bed and this chair and this corner of this room. It's harder to stay active and stuff. But the you know anxiety is a natural state that your brain gives you to handle intense things it's, it's a form of motivation the way i the way i see it and you you have to do something with it you know and so it's like a, the worst thing in the world to be frustrated with all this intense energy that you can direct nowhere and then channel it back into your phone that's a mental health nightmare for anybody you know yeah. so you could see why 
turn into a medication, of course, is reasonable thing to try or appealing. If it could do, you know, know my central nervous system down a little bit, that probably would help. Is it worth it? I don't know. All right. Well, Rose, this has been awesome. We really appreciate you being on here. Where can uh, folks find out more about you and, and even the your music? Um, so just on Facebook, like Rose Yesha Music, and then my Pharmademics page, so it ends with an X. Um, and I can email email you some of that, um, some of the links. And um, I just wanted to close out and say I'm a huge Emory fan. Um, I first heard <laughs> studying, I first heard studying politics. My ex boyfriend in college um, had played it for me, and I was like, man, this song is amazing. And I still listen to it. You know what? Fifteen came out like 15, 16 years yeah. ago now. Wow. And um, so when you guys contacted me, I was like, wow, this is this is awesome because I remember like listening to it. And I still it's still on my playlist. Um, I was listening to it recently. I was sending it to a bunch of friends and, um, yeah, that's just so cool. And I, I noticed you guys are doing virtual concerts, so, you know, good for you. And, um, yeah, thank so you. thank you for having me yeah, on. That's and just it's part been, of where we pleasure. channeled the energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had no idea about that, but it's, it's been a nice to meet you and get to know you and hear your story a little bit. It's nice to have that common ground. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to say, I, I really appreciate your bravery. This is a really tough, tough topic to talk about. And I mean, it's hard to navigate this and I just, I thought you're, uh, article was so well written and the work you're doing with Pharmedics is, is just really cool so I, we really appreciate your time and those communities yeah. like if there's people out there I mean just, I don't know what the stats are how many people are on medication but it almost seems like half or something if you just talk about it but it's probably not half but if there are people that are questioning that first of all don't hear us as well you better get toughen up get off the meds do your thing you know it's not that but where can that what are these communities where they'll find other people asking the same questions as them is the best, not listen to me or anything, but right. who else is asking these same questions that it's in their shoes? Where are those communities? So I would say like surviving antidepressants.org, um, benzobuddies.org. I'm an administrator in a Facebook group called the Benzo Warrior Community. So if you are struggling to get off benzodiazepines, um, we have an admin team. We do weekly um, Zoom roundtables where essentially you can interact with the admin team and with other members um, and we provide support. Um, we have units for recovery, you know, dealing with the symptoms, dealing with tolerance, educating people about what's happening to them. We have about 1,500 members right now um, and we're growing. Um, so yeah, Ben's a warrior community. You guys can just right. look it up on Facebook. Um, but there is there is support. It's underground, as you have as you've said, Matt. But but you know we're we're there and we volunteer our time and um, you know I'm there every day talking to people and it's always sad seeing our community grow because I'm like there's more people dealing with this. But it's also like I'm glad that people are finding us, um, you know, and and getting the help awesome. that they need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our our uh, listeners are open-minded, alternative, underground. Uh, they're used to it. We've been in, you know, underground music and different scenes and alternative thought, and you know. So yeah. I think we're in the right space. I think this has been a terrific episode that'll be uh, very yeah. stimulating and interesting and helpful to people. Yep. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, Toby. Another good pick with Rose. Thanks for picking it out. Yeah, Madden America is a site and you know podcasts that i check out from time to time but yeah. uh, you know it's it's in one of those circles it's like super far left but when they come into view of the some of the topics that i care about it's like right in my line yeah. and then there's other topics where i find them a, a little bit weird but I, you know i think that's what probably the future is going to be intersecting with certain people on certain things if we could get used to that yeah. feeling i think that's a good feeling 
I think the thing left, right, (laughs) probably the thing that is funny about you and me is that we are just very curious. So I always want to hear uh, different stories, different sides of a story. I I just, I just want to hear it. Not that I, I mean, that's what I think is so fascinating is that it, it shouldn't be just one thing or one experience that says, this is it. And that's all that needs to be said about it. I want to hear every side so you can get really something there in the middle. You know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. I can figure out, Oh wait, this is probably what the actual truth is. But when it, when it goes too far one way or too far the other way, that's why I like having guests like Rose on, uh, just so you can hear about somebody's experience and their story and then you know kind of open your mind up a little bit to see what what else is out yeah. there rather than just what kind of you you're just told right it's, but you know psych meds falls in the territory of a lot of the other taboos where it's like it's you should be able to say things but if you do it's like what well, not all or right. not my or you know it's like well then you're then we're on some taboo here because this feels weird to not be able to like right. to have to you know things that you feel you have to disclaim for a year before you say something very reasonable yeah. like that means it's like the thing that can't be named <laughs> that's know. the that's Voldemort right right isn't that what Harry Potter's about what yeah. you can't talk about is, is everything wrong well well it was the same thing as it's very much like the religion that I grew up in the religious uh, fundamentalist uh, Christianity that I grew up in was you couldn't even talk about alcohol. Or talk right. about uh, you know uh, you couldn't talk about mental health. Oh, yeah, purity I mean, any, culture is yeah. creates a big Voldemort. Basically. Right, so you can't you can't say anything because it's just wrong or it's just. I mean, like no, shut up. No, I, I just want to hear some stories. I want to hear a few different sides of things and, and make yeah. an assessment rather than just blindly. Because when I blindly accept when that the mm. last time this happened to me. Every time. But I'm talking about the last time this happened to me when I was, uh, you know, eight, nine years old. Guess what? I came out with it. That homosexuals were going to burn in hell. That anybody outside of my small church most likely was going to burn in hell. They were all dangerous. Democrats were really bad, evil, terrible. I mean, because people just said, you can't ask questions. You can't think about things from the other side. And I'm telling you, you have to be careful because that can happen. Even if it's for, I mean, obviously, uh, psych meds work. They, they do work, I, I, for sure. People have received a lot of help with that. But there's people that, you know, are struggling with it, too. And I, I just want to hear their story as well. So I sound like I'm yep. fired up. I'm not really that fired up. I nope, just, you know, not really. Still thinking just about that model and then I had to take it back to school. My damn kid won't, probably won't even thank me. Probably will no, not thank forgot. me. Yeah, that's okay. I'm gonna go. And in. that that model was uh, it wasn't even his project. It's a bully that yeah. that he had to do it for. <laughs> he worked really hard. That's to why not get beat up. That's why he was like, "Please, yeah. Dad, so please, you don't understand." Yeah. <laughs> um, we are doing an encore presentation of "I'm Only a Man." It was such a hit, of course, but really, it's for Emeryland people. So they're the ones that made it happen, and so we're gonna have a party on Friday the twelfth. So if you came to see I'm Only a Man at all, it was quite a successful event, and we loved it. And so we're going to encore present it at a, and do a chat party and some other stuff in, uh, in Emeryland. So anybody that bought a ticket, if you saw it, you are eligible to join Emeryland for three months. You have a three-month membership waiting for you, so just complete that. And then the details will be on the inside, email, stuff like that. But we're um, looking forward to revisiting that. So join Emeryland and join the BC Club get plugged into our communities and find one that sounds right for you for the stuff you're interested in and spend a little less time on the mainstream communities. 
That's right. Be on the lookout Friday. We'll have that episode up with a bunch of band dudes talking and uh, talking about a yeah, bonus episode coming. Friday. A little bit about uh, Dan Coke's new survey too. We'll be talking about that. So, All yeah, right. Dan Coke has a survey um, studying our whole scene that he calls it the whole these the whole scene of the uh, deconstructing post evangelical thing, and he's doing academic research. So we're gonna talk about that a little bit more and share that with y'all. That's what's going on. See y'all later. Thank you.